we have a new episode of Biocompatibility Dawn where another NAMPA colleague agreed to join us. We're getting lucky. That's right. Right. It's always have good to have, as we say, new attendees. And, and this time, <laughs> you know, we reached out to somebody internally for an a incredibly valid reason. So, yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's super exciting. So we're talking to Dr. Caraway today. And Joe is our scientific director here at NAMSA. He's a, a vet. He's our head head veterinarian and scientific director of R in vivo studies primarily. He was a big part of a new paper that came out regarding the in vitro assay for irritation. And so we took this time to discuss that with him. And I think it's really, there's a lot of interesting nuggets in this article as well as um, in Joe's discussion here today. Yeah, not only on, you know, a, a comparison between the in vitro irritation model as, and, and the in vivo irritation uh, skin models, but also, you know, just getting an update on the standards that cover irritation testing, ISO 10993 Part 10, and, and the 2B released ISO 10993 Part 23 covering irritation. So getting some updates on that, as well as, you know, the paper itself. So certainly good stuff. Definitely. So... So I'll let you all know, Dr. Caraway is, as I mentioned, our scientific director at NAMSA. He holds a doctorate in veterinary medicine and an MS in laboratory animal medicine. He's had over 38 years experience in clinical medicine and surgery, biomedical science, and testing procedures, and has worked at NAMSA since 1996. He's involved in a wide variety of, of different uh, groups and in conducting proof of concept studies and efficacy and safety and for a lot of NAMSA sponsors, of course. And then he's also worked with the ISO meetings. He's authored publications and he's actively involved in four or five different ISO committees for the TC194, which is the Global Testing Guidelines and Requirements for Medical Devices for ISO 10993. This one in particular we're going to be talking about, as Don mentioned, is his participation with the uh, upcoming ISO 10993 Part 23 for irritation. So lots of good stuff here and very timely, exciting. Again, this is the year of exciting news for biocompatibility. Yeah, look at all the movement out there. Gives look us plenty of material to talk about. <laughs> I so. know. What a great time to be in a podcast about biocompatibility. There we go. There we go. <laughs> all right. Everybody enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, another episode of Biocompatibility is upon us, Don, and we're we're lucky to have a NAMSA colleague joining us this time who's done some research that's going to be published. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, he, I mean, he wasn't too hard to con to join us. I mean, we've known him long enough, so apparently he trusts us, which is his first mistake to to join the podcast. <laughs> right, and I always I always remember he he always remembers my name because I have the same name as his wife. There you go. <laughs> so Dr. Joe Carraway is joining us. Hey, Joe, welcome to the podcast. I guess I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm you're lucky. He's worried. You're lucky you don't have to be sitting in the same room with us. Some people have had to do that. We we get to be 
in separate locations while we're still experiencing the joys of COVID-19. So I know you haven't really had much of a change, though. You've been able to go into the lab pretty much every day, haven't you? Uh, pretty much. The, there was a period where I would work, you know, essentially two or three days a week from home and then, you know, two or three days a week at the office. But since uh, the end of May, it's been a regular schedule. Right. I guess lucky or unlucky, however you want to look at that. <laughs> but you kind of have a, you have a job that you kind of have to be hands on. So we're grateful that you're able to be there today. We're going to talk about um, Dr. Caraway with a with a group of other professionals in the industry has written a paper that's going to be published uh, on the suitability of reconstructed human epidermis models for medical device irritation assessments. A comparison of in vitro and in vivo testing results. I think this is super exciting news. So currently, right, let me make sure I get the current status right. Irritation and sensitization are both in ISO 10993 part 10, correct? At least for a little while longer. They are right. they are about to split. Okay, and so then irritation is moving to a part new three. Okay, part 23, right. And part of that change is going to include us having this in vitro model be in the document, correct? Yes, it's, it was in the document previously uh, more as an informative annex, but now it's part of the, the normative information. Okay. So more of an expectation that you actually conduct the in vivo, excuse me, in vitro assays. Right. So I think that's an interesting point. So the, the three R's, right? So we, which are replacement reduction and refinement. You know, the paper mentions it's been 60 years since Rachel and Birch formulated this concept. And really, we've over the years have had experiences with different parts of, of 10993 where we've been able to create in vitro alternatives or alternatives to maybe standard models that are more aligned to this 3R reduction. But this is really, you know, a substantial move in that direction. Yeah, the, say with, everyone knows that this has been coming to move toward in vitro methods, uh, but the standards were written in such a way that it was still an option. And with the release of this updated Part 23 or new Part 23, which covers irritation methods, it essentially mandates that you really need to be doing, if you have determined that you need to test for irritation. So it still follows part one of ISO in that you still evaluate your materials, uh, determine what leachables and extractables are, and whether you need additional testing to determine if uh, irritation is a concern. But if you've determined that, it says the next step is that you do an in vitro irritation model as opposed to uh, going into an in vivo model. So from that standpoint, when this releases, Part 23 releases sometime this fall, 
there will be a much stronger push for medical device companies to start out doing an in vitro irritation study instead of just uh, immediately going to uh, an in vivo model. Yeah, it's super sub- substantial change, right? Probably, yes. um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's up on the lines of the new Part 18, but it's probably got me right up there <laughs> as far as shaking up the shaking up the industry a little bit. The abstract mentions that, you know, the purpose of this study was really to do a comparison between the current in vivo models with the in vitro and, you know, in general, the abstract states, it shows it's an acceptable replacement. We'll get into like some of that detail, but I think that in general had to be a great relief to the group. I'm guessing that might have been your goal, right, to try to make sure that we had an acceptable alternative. Yeah, I, th- I think the results are, if anything, the results for the topical application, the in, in vivo topical application, were a little surprising that you didn't see as much of a response by that route of exposure as you did, uh, say, in the in vitro methods or the intracutaneous method. So... So some right. some surprises there. Yeah, and Joe, you just going back to you know part ten. I was just looking at the status of, of part ten and part twenty three in their development. It looked like the part twenty three, the voting just ended for the FDIS in September, and part ten is kind of still on the list of to be revised as of January of this year. So if part twenty three comes out this fall, like like you had mentioned, you know, just kind of guessing at that that timeline because you know with like part 18 we all thought it would be out sooner than later then it sort of looked like later and then it became sooner so on and so forth <laughs> surprise <laughs> um but uh, i mean i assume that that there's going to be some overlap where part 10 still covers irritation and part 23 might already be out there uh short overlap the uh yeah. the goal is to get this revised Part 10 released shortly thereafter. Uh, we had a meeting, oh, I think uh, back in August to go over changes. And I want to say we're ready to go out uh, for a final vote. So it's it's not far behind. So the this new 23 for irritation should come out, let's say, maybe November you know, it's hard, it's hard to be real precise on when these get released, but it wouldn't surprise me that Part 10 gets uh, released in, you know, sometime early next year. All right. And Joe, so the article that we're discussing, uh, just so I, I let the let the listeners know, so it's not been published yet. Where is it going to be published? Is it Toxicology in Vitro? Is that the the magazine's name? Uh, it's uh, toxicology in vitro. Uh, okay. And so right now what we have is they've given you an author link that you've shared with us. So Don and I were able to review the document. And um, so for 50 days from today, which were, well, 50 days from the first part of September, I guess about is when they gave it to you. Yeah. You're, you're able to share that link. So I want to let the listeners know if you'd like to receive 
the link to read the article, you can go to www.namsa.com slash contact. And if you fill out that form there and just mention that you'd like the in vitro article that we discussed on the podcast, we'll be able to forward you the link from Dr. Caraway so that you can read the article as well uh, before it comes out. After that, then the link will go to, I believe, a, a paid site. Is that correct, Joe? Yeah, although uh, what I'll say is with this journal and a lot of journals now, uh, many of the articles are are free for, for downloading. So I don't know if this one will be still behind that paywall or if it will be free for download okay. as well. Okay. But at least for a period of time, we know it's free and we have it available for folks. Yep. They would fill out that contact form. That way we can we can uh, provide you with this article as well. So you can read along should you wish to with our discussion here. So, all right, well, let's get into a little bit of the, the study design maybe. And I know there were lots of folks involved, several different laboratories, um, of course, NAMSA being one of them. We participated with the in vivo testing, is that correct? Or did uh, we do both? Maybe to the stage, Okay. Uh, about at the same time, or, or this this comparative study happened toward the end of the round robin for the uh, mm. in vitro testing. So for that in vitro testing of this reconstructed human epithelial cell model, that's really what the basis of this in vitro testing is is utilizes. There were 16 labs that participated in that. And between the 16 labs, there were, oh, there were several chemicals and several polymers that had uh, positive control chemicals that were added to them to try to generate a material that could be extracted. So that original in vitro. Uh, testing, like I said, used solutions of chemicals. Uh, there was hepatic acid, sodium didactyls, sulfate, and lactic acid, as well as those uh, were combined in some polymers, some PVC, silicones, as well as there was an emulsifier that was used, genopol, uh, was used as a as a positive control. So, so there were a variety of materials, and some of these materials gave positive responses with polar and nonpolar vehicles. Uh, but we did find with, with some of these that you only had a positive response with just say the the polar vehicle or solvent, or just the the nonpolar, which. Uh, for the polar was saline, and for the nonpolar was uh, sesame oil. So, a pretty robust round robin study. And then for the comparison, so what we've been using have been in vivo models. And typically, there's a topical exposure, which we refer to as a, a primary skin irritation study, and a more aggressive exposure where you actually, instead of applying the material topically, you actually 
inject the solution or extracts into the skin, intradermal. It's basically equivalent if you've ever had a TB test where you mm. inject, you know, the curriculum uh, intradermal and look for erythema and edema for the next, say, three days. So that's essentially what a intracutaneous reactivity study is. So we tested those same chemicals and extracts in these in vivo models. And what we discovered uh, was that for the primary skin, which is topical, uh, we essentially had the only material that we had positive responses for was for the sodium, uh, uh, I say, some people list it as SDS, I uh, list it as SLS. They're, they're essentially the same chemicals, the sodium lauryl sulfate. That's the only one that in the topical exposure that gave a, a positive signal. And uh, that's actually the positive controls that we use periodically. So it's pretty well characterized, and we expected to see a positive response. But for the other chemicals in the intracutaneous reactivity, there was pretty good agreement in that we got positive responses in all of the things that turned out positive in the in vitro irritation study. The, the one that was a little bit of um, variability was one of the, I'm trying to think now, was it the, the one of the genopole mixtures in the polymer, I believe, but what they determined, and in the round-robin in vitro testing, we saw some variability as well. And we think it's uh, some of the variability was due to the, the chemical not being homogeneous uh, mm. in, the, in the polymer. Th these aren't regular polymers that normally include these chemicals where people are making them on the benchtop adding. And so the, the mixing of them may not be uniform. So we did see some variability for one of the polymers that was extracted. But otherwise, the results were pretty consistent with the in vitro assay. And to further say, the there was also, and I won't get into any great detail, but uh, concurrent with the round robin in vitro assay, there was human patch testing that was done over in Europe. And mm. I'd say the results for the strongly positive materials in the in vitro assay, we had a positive response in the patch test, the human patch test, but uh, not everything that was positive in either the in vitro irritation assay or the cutaneous reactivity assay gave a positive in the human patch test. I would say that we actually did see more positives in the human patch test than the uh, the uh, in vivo equivalent that we do in our lab. So, so anyway, the the 
takeaway message, I guess I would say from this is that the the in vivo and in vivo methods, at least in vitro compared to the intracutaneous reactivity, are fairly equivalent. The one challenge may come in is that the we don't use the intracutaneous reactivity method for all things that need an irritation study. And right. if, if anything, that uh, intracutaneous reactivity method might be considered an over-challenge for something that only has topical exposure. So I guess what I would say is it at least gives you confidence that you're not missing potential positives. So, you know, the concern with predictive assays is that you don't want to have false negatives. Uh, you know, something that really is a positive and you call it a negative. You don't want to have those. You can live right. with false positives because uh, you're typically going to do further testing to see, yeah, is that real? So it, there'll, there'll be a transition here. And one of the challenges that I think we'll, we'll see is right now for the in vivo methods, I'd say just off the top of my head, we may have 5% of studies and maybe less that come up with a positive response, meaning that the the test article turns out to be uh, listed as an irritant. I think with right. the in vitro test methods, that percentage, initial percentage may go up some. And uh, what the standard does is currently define, and I was reviewing that this morning, is it doesn't necessarily uh, into any great discussion on what you do next if you have a positive on the in vitro assay. Uh, what I assume is that then pushes you over into an in vivo assay to say, you know, do we see once we maybe apply in an in vivo model, do we still get a positive response? So there'll be some learning curve here. But I think if someone does an in vitro irritation study and it's negative, I think they're they're good. They don't have to worry about the material being a potential irritant. Uh, but if they have a positive response, uh, then they they potentially have more testing to do. So we so to that point, Joe. I guess initially we might have that little you know that little conundrum that we have for like in vitro cytotoxicity testing, where you have you know if you have a positive response, you know one of the approaches has always been to look at your in vivo data to see if there's a you know as the standard says for part five any in vivo correlation, and here. I just wonder for some regulators, if they see that positive response in vitro, will even providing an in vivo test be enough to alleviate the concern, if you will? Um, because, I mean, again, on the cytotox side, you know, that 
the most commonly used in vitro study, I would say right now, you know, there's always the pushback. Yeah, even if your in vivo stuff passes, you haven't identified the root cause of what caused your in vitro to fail, which could be a little bit of a frustration and a learning curve, I guess, on the uh, on the in vivo side. I mean, on the uh, irritation side of things. Although here it's, I guess, you know, a point to point comparison in terms of an irritation study in vitro and in vivo were with cytotox, you know, cytotox just being a general screen for biocompatibility is more of a general rule. Right. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the situation with a positive on a cytotox, we've had that deal with for the last 30 plus years. And so I think people, you know, have kind of gotten comfortable with dealing with that. You know, if you had a positive for latex, you know, you realize that latex is go- going to give you a positive. But once we get into the in vitro irrigation methods and you get a positive, since it's new territory, I think, uh, less familiarity with the test methods, I think uh, there'll be some angst as far as what that means, what we do next. and But I think it's... It is going to rely on uh, chemical characterization, what in your test article might have caused that response, and then probably is going to rely on either additional irritation testing or closer look at, if it's an implantable, your implant results to say, all right, does this translate into any concern about when it's implanted, are you getting an irritation or inflammatory response? Right. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, the in the study, you know, the comparison with the in vitro assays to uh, intracutaneous and primary skin irritation models. You know, obviously, in today's world, in part 10, it covers all types of different irritation, whether they be skin, but also mucosal, ocular oral irritation, all that good stuff. Does part 23 on the in vitro side, this in vitro assay, is it going to be used as a screen for all types of irritation? Or is it like if if I have a mucosal contacting device, can I use this in vitro assay, even though, you know, based on the paper, it was just compared to skin models? Oh, great question, Don. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I had a moment. You had a moment of brilliance. (laughs) We may have stumped Joe, though. I think the intention is primarily to use this for where you would use a skin, an in vivo skin irritation model. Uh, there, having said that, there are separate ocular irritation models and other special tissue irritation models that are in the, the works. The ocular has been at least val- validated for chemicals. Uh, the others, you know, tissue types of irritation models, I'm not sure where they are in the validation process, but I'm sure that there will be other tissue-specific in vitro irritation models that are that are produced and validated. The, the key is... It says in the standard that it's an adequately validated uh, model. So I think for these 
special tissue irritation studies that will still be using uh, the in vivo models as a primary irritation screen. Having said that, I think if a client is very uh, concerned about the in vivo studies and jumping into them, this in vitro irritation model that's mainly geared towards skin could be a, a useful screening tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's just that, that, that concept. I mean, obviously that it's reconstructed human epidermis models for, yeah. so I could see like you were talking about maybe potentially like they did on the ocular side. If the, if the, uh, in vitro components, um, the test system is something different and more applicable to other types of those special tissues. Like you were talking, maybe that's a, maybe it's another study like this, another paper like this, once that, uh, gets out there. But, um, anyways, yeah. So follow up for me, uh, yeah. sorry, John, just a follow up. And I think Joe, I heard you correctly, but it won't be long before we're as a, as a lab and company and industry are, are rushed with, can I do the in vitro? Can I do the in vitro? Can I do the in vitro? My my company wants me to focus on in vitro models whenever I can. So did did I hear you correctly that it's a best alternative for the primary skin, but maybe not for intracutaneous? Or do you think it could be an alternative for both? I think it could be an alternative for both. Okay. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of folks that just have to do, you know, CSI, sensitization irritation, and they can do two of those in vitro and only have the one in vivo model for sensitization. Lots of companies have that focus, that endeavor to use in vitro whenever possible. So, you know, I think it'll task uh, laboratories <laughs> in being ready for that, right? Because yep. the next thing I wanted to talk about was some of the challenges. Don, unless you have any more questions on the kind of the viability, I know that this essay presents challenges for laboratories. Yeah, that, that, that's actually kind of some of what I was going to go to next. So, Proceed. Nothing else for me. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, and I'll just say it flat out. I don't think it's going to be cheap. I don't think it's going to be faster. But obviously for folks that have that focus of using in vitro whenever possible, it's going to be very advantageous to them. So I've heard through the, the discussions with other folks that the the supplier, like the cell supply chain could yep. be tasked very quickly. Um, was there discussion about that and thoughts on how <laughs> how that might work when when two or three or four of the main medical device laboratories start ramping up for this study? Well, the only thing I can say is the 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 manufacturers. There there are at least uh, two main companies that make these reconstructed. Uh, epidermis models and you know they were participating in that round robin uh they've been kind of keyed into what's going on with the standard so i'm assuming that you know they have visibility that this is coming and you know still uh -huh. even though you know something coming it can still take a little while to gear up production to to meet the demand. And I guess I would say, even though this will, this new standard will release hopefully sometime this fall, the, the other 
variable in this, which you know uh, we didn't mention, is the, <laughs> the regulatory, yeah, yeah, the regulatory <laughs> aspect. So you know you can do what the three little letters. Does, <laughs> there goes you, my last you, question. Uh, you also want to make sure it gets approved, and right. I I think this article that we're discussing, this comparison of in vivo and in vitro, that was some useful information that we had previously presented at the ISO meetings. And, you know, the reviewers do like to see this in print because they know it's been vetted and peer-reviewed. They can refer to it. Um, so I think now that this is out there, this publication or soon to be out there, that will give some additional credence that the in vitro models are a reasonable alternative. And they can, if you have a negative, it's it shouldn't cause any concern. Uh, but there'll still be a period of acceptance and you know, I I don't know how long regulatory agencies will take to fully recognize, and I'd say that will happen essentially immediately over in Europe, whereas in the yeah. U.S., it, it may be more of a phased-in acceptance. So because of that, I don't necessarily think that it will, you know, the demand for the in vitro versus in vivo will change overnight. Yet, will certainly start happening much more faster than uh, in the past. But this, uh, I think, it'll be a gradual transition over a year or more, maybe. Yeah, I guess it'll just be interesting to once Part Twenty Three is officially out there. Say roughly six months later, when the FDA puts out their extent of recognition, assuming that they recognize the standard, it'll just be interesting to see from that perspective what the FDA yep. indicates there. So even, I mean, if we use that as a rough time frame, I mean, I always use roughly six months before you see it listed in the database on FDA's side. So even there, you know, we could be mid next year before we really get that type of input unless something happens quicker than that from from that perspective. Yeah, I had that thought too. That so certainly the Europe for Europe. So if you're in Europe and you're producing for Europe, you're probably going to be. This is going to be a great path for you. But if you're in Europe and you might be going Europe, FDA, China, Japan, you you might either have two strategies or just you know it'll be interesting to see if you'll if you'll do the in vitro model for Europe because that's what they're they may expect, and then still do the in vivo model for other markets. There could be a dual program. And I think we, you know, years ago, I remember having dual programs for genotoxicity, right? Of, mm-hmm. of Depending on where you were going, you had to do different combinations of studies. This may follow that same type of pattern, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I guess the, the only other caveat besides the the 3R type concept that you were talking about and during that like dual pathing is also just the cost involved of of dual pathing things. Not that it's, you know, not talking chronic toxicity (laughs) or something like that, but still uh, for some companies, anything they can save in terms of money is, uh, is beneficial to them in some cases. 
Yeah, and I think the general speculation, at least within the folks that I've talked to, is this is going to be more costly than the current in vivo methods, partly because of that sourcing and the tissue and however long you can keep it. And do you have to order, you know, tissue one at a time? And, you know, I think there's a lot of unknowns maybe as to how laboratories ramp up for this. So it'll be interesting to see if cost and time becomes a really big challenge for those folks that want to use this methodology. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Joe, anything else you want to highlight from the paper? I think this is really such good information and exciting times, right? It's fun to see advances and changes in something that maybe hasn't advanced or changed in a while. This appears to be the year of advances and changes when it comes to biocompatibility. So anything else you want to highlight about the the study or the article or let the folks know? Yeah, I mean, the main thing, this was a collaborative effort to to get this information out there. Our lead author, Dr. Wim DeJong, he was uh, really leading this effort as far as the him and Kelly Coleman uh, the in vitro round robin, this comparative study in vivo. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's really, while our laboratory was, you know, the really involved as well as the laboratory in China was involved in providing all of the in vivo data, uh, it was really Dr. Wim Jong that uh, spearheaded putting the information together for this publication. And, you know, I appreciate all of his efforts in that regard. Oh, absolutely. Well, maybe we need to try to get him on the podcast too, huh? <laughs> we probably don't have as, we can't wrangle him as easy as we can you, Joe. <laughs> Retired now, so he maybe has more time. <laughs> He's in, is he in the Netherlands? Is that what I read? Correct. Yeah. 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 Well, awesome. I think this was really great, really exciting stuff. I'll remind everyone that we do have a link where you can access the article. If you'd like to receive that link, you can go to www.namsa.com slash contact, and you fill out that contact form for us. And just mention that you'd like the in vitro irritation article, and we will be able to send you um, that link from Dr. Caraway. So, so it's two truths and a lie time. Don, I did not do mine. <laughs> and I let Joe off the hook too. So it's you, Don, entertain us. Oh my gosh. I, I, I don't know how good these uh, truths or lies are. And they'll probably be too easy for you guys. But I, I, I've tried to keep with my theme of trying to make them relevant to what we're talking about today. So um, okay. I tried. I, I tried. So, (laughs) all right, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Of the big five, first quiz, what's the big five? Cytosensitization, irritation, acute systemic, and pyrogen material, pyrogen test. So of the big five. I've never called them that before, but now you're calling them that. It's the big three, so you might as well have the big (laughs) five. (laughs) It's CSI plus plus. CSI AP. There we go. Go ahead. Uh, Of the big five. In terms of failures, I would rank cytotoxicity and irritation one, two, respectively. Uh, I've had a regulator suggest that 
when it came to irritation, a product need to be, needed to be tested for penile, rectal, vaginal, oral, and skin irritation, all, every one of them. Wow. Third one, in vivo irritation, in a lot of cases, I've seen it actually used as a more relevant screen for biocompatibility than cytotoxicity. Oh, those are good, Don. Yeah. It's like I thought about these, right? I mean, come on. I believe number one is true. And yeah. I believe, I'm going to say two is the lie. I just can't imagine somebody asking yeah. for all of that. Yeah, see, it's, 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 it's almost a truth. It's almost a truth. It's almost the truth, but I threw in skin to make it a lie. Wow. They asked for all the rest of it, though, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And we won't go into what the test article was. Yeah, that's Leave okay. That. I think that's your uh, <laughs> imagination. <laughs> I had that same thought. We're going to stop there. <laughs> I had to screen that uh, that that lie for appropriateness by my, my wife. Like, I don't know. What's the problem? And I was like, okay, good. Okay, never mind. <laughs> But anyway, uh, anyways. well, those are good, Don. Yeah, that that um, yeah, I, I think number one, I've heard, we've talked about that before, and it usually seems like it's with irritation. It's one. It's usually the um, the nonpolar extract, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I probably I would say they're almost mixed. Are they almost mixed? Polar and nonpolar. Um, yeah. But when it comes to a, you know, using an vivo irritation as a screen over cyto, in those cases, it was because the risk assessment did its job and actually pinpointed potential irritants as a risk. And rather than assume cyto would catch it, you know, we just jumped to the end and, and went with an irritation study. And I've, you know, in those situations where you actually use assessment concepts to drive your evaluation plan, you know, you could you could find yourself in that situation, I think. So anyway. Well, thank you, Dr. Caraway, so much for spending your time with us and sharing this article. I think it's very interesting and exciting for the industry, and I'm sure we'll have uh, lots of folks who want to receive it and and probably some some questions. So we appreciate your time, and um, I think we're excited to, uh, I know, working with the teams at NAMSA on how we ramp up and how we prepare for this standard to be out there. It's exciting times for sure. Yep. Big changes. Uh, Austin in the in vitro lab is going to get busier. Right. Yeah. I think he's ready. I'm not sure. Well, <laughs> we, we maybe should have Austin on next on how do you get ready for the in vitro <laughs> irritation essay. So anyway, thanks you all. That's another great episode of Biocom Chatability. We're happy that you joined us. Joe, Don, y'all, thanks for your time and have a great day. Thanks again, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.